Hello and welcome to Table Topics, the general advice and discussion podcast from the RPG Academy. I am Michael and this is Table Topics, episode number 71, The Trial of Faith Recap and Review. In this episode, Caleb interviews myself and Scott, two of the three players who played in our The Trial of Faith one-shot actual play. And we basically just kind of talk about what we liked, what we didn't like, and uh, overall thoughts and impression of the system. Spoiler, we both really liked it. Now, unfortunately, Matthew, who was our third player, was not able to make the session. He did have a conversation with Caleb before the uh, before we recorded, so Caleb was able to work in some of his thoughts and ideas and concerns and compliments, uh, but he was not able to participate fully uh, in this recap and review. Uh, so February 11th, 2015, the Kickstarter started. It's going to go for about 30 days. Uh, we really hope you'll take a moment to check it out and see if this is something that you might be interested in backing. I myself have backed it. I really liked the game system. I liked uh, a lot about it and I want to play it at home. So I've uh, given them some of my money. I'm not asking you to give them any of yours, but just simply to check it out and see if it's something you would like to do. Uh, So here you go. Here is Table Topics, episode number 71, The Trial of Faith, Recap and Review. Welcome to Table Topics. I am Michael, and I have brought along with me, as I always do, my favorite co-host and yours, the Caleb G. Caleb, how are you doing tonight, sir? Oh, I'm doing quite wonderful, Michael. How are you? I'm doing quite well as well. I recently got back from my trip to Winter Fantasy, uh, had had a great time, had some great interviews, got to play some fun games, and uh, maybe made some connections that will lead to some very exciting things in the future for our podcast. Uh, But tonight, we are going to talk specifically about Faith, a sci-fi RPG by Burning Games. We had the opportunity to do an early playtest of the game with one of the game's designers as our DM. And uh, we're just going to get together and talk about it. Now, for that game, we had uh, Matthew and Scott as uh, players in addition to myself. Caleb was supposed to be a player, but unfortunately, real life got in the way and he was not able to join us. Uh, And then, unfortunately, again, uh, Matthew had some real life stuff tonight. So he's not going to be able to join us for our recap. So it's going to be Scott and I. Uh, But Caleb was able to listen to all the episodes. I got them to him early, and he's going to kind of lead the discussion and ask us some questions. But to make sure I don't forget, Scott, go ahead and say hello so people know that you're actually here. Oh, howdy, everybody in Radio Land. I'll be the third wheel slash chaperone in your general two-host system. Sounds good, because that won't throw anything out of whack whatsoever. Usually I just edit Matthew out, so if I have to, I'll do the same to you. So, Caleb, this is your show tonight, so take it away, sir. Wonderful. Well, I just want to tell everyone who's listening first, um, that song that you're thinking of when we said what game we're talking about, we couldn't afford the rights, but just go ahead and put it on loop on YouTube, and uh, that'll be some good background music for you. That's what I'm doing right now. You just can't hear it. Um, I listened to the episodes uh, about faith, and I read through the instruction manuals that the fellas from the company sent out to us. But uh, I, I done since I didn't really have a, a hands-on experience with it. Um, first thing I want to ask you guys is, I mean, what is the game? Give give our listeners uh, a quick little rundown of your take on the game, a quick description, how it works, kind of thing. I did not have a chance to read through the background material, like the, the source material to the game, you know, the world and the universe that it was in. Um, I spent most of my time lo- reading over the mechanics of how the game works. Uh, so basically, the thing that I found most interesting to start with, and I even asked Carlos sort of about this before we started, is I just found it very interesting that the name of the game is Faith when it's a science fiction RPG. And, I, you know, I'm sure those aren't necessarily dichotomous, but they don't necessarily always go hand in hand either. So I thought that was pretty interesting. But basically, it's a science fiction, outer space, intergalactic, um, space opera type of game 
There are uh, multiple races that are represented. Uh, from what I understand, this is all completely new material. I don't think they've co-opted it from anywhere else that I'm aware of. Um, each of the races have their own individual perks and, and flaws and edges type of a thing, uh, just like most role-playing games. And um, the, the big sort of centerpiece to the exploration, because it seems to me that the game is built a, a lot around exploration, is something they called the Labyrinth which is pretty interesting. Basically, it's like a black hole, but uh, within the black hole, it connects to you know, if hundreds, millions of other black holes, and it basically creates just a series of wormholes that go all the way across the galaxy, um, the majority of it unexplored. So when you go into the labyrinth, you're never exactly sure where you might come out. Like there's safe routes, but it's very easy to get off of those and to take detours and to... Uh, other places and that's what happened to us in our first game we we went out in kind of a weird place and then we were confronted with the opportunity for adventure uh the core mechanic and this is one thing that i actually i really enjoyed about the game is that it uses a deck of cards uh, as the core mechanic it does if you if you back the game or if you end up purchasing the game it will come with art like they're they made their own deck of cards and they actually the art looks amazing i don't know who they hired but it's awesome but you can play it with a regular deck of uh, playing cards as well uh, poker deck uh, you remove the jokers and you give the jokers to the dm and that, that's a way for it to kind of scale that the more players you have the more jokers the dm will have and the jokers are special so when they come up uh, you know it's really good for the dm and at that point it's kind of like a weird sort of bluffing bidding mechanic which um if you are behind, like it's called a confrontation, and, uh, and I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but basically you are assumed to succeed at most things. Like it's, it kind of reminds me of fate in that regard is that you are assumed to be fairly competent and most of the things that you're going to do are just going to, going to succeed. But if the DM decides or the GM decides that they want to challenge you or another character decides to challenge you, then it's called a confrontation. And the way that works is that, again, that bluffing bidding mechanic. Let's say that I start with a value of five based off of my skills and my talents, and Scott's character starts with a seven. Since he's already winning, he doesn't have to do anything unless I can get above the seven. So I play a card out of my hand, and again, it goes from poker hand, so it goes from a one to a 13. And then if I'm then winning, then it goes back to him to try to play another card to get above me. There are limits to how many cards you can play based off of your skills and your talents. There's a mechanic for advantage and disadvantage, which means you can play more or less cards than you normally could. But at the end of the day, whoever has the highest number when everything is done wins that confrontation. And if you have, uh, if you're more than five above the number, that can be a critical success. And if you, your last card you play is a core card or a face card, then that can be, uh, there's another term for it. I can't remember. Do you remember what the, the terms were, Scott? There was uh, two levels. It was like a critical, and then it was like basically a super critical. And um, if you did that as the last card, then you get a greater effect depending on what you're doing. I really enjoyed that mechanic. I don't know that I caught on to it as quickly as some of the other players did. Um, I got a little bit confused at times, but uh, I think it's kind of a cool little mechanic. I can see people who really like to play the, the crunch mechanic and just figure out the best ways to bluff and outbid your opponent to, to win. And at the same time, it's super simple. So if you're just really into storytelling and role playing, it's just like, bam, bam, bam. Okay, I got a 12, you got a 13, you win, and you just keep the story going. So I, I don't know. I really enjoyed it. So now I'll turn it over to you, Scott. What do you have to say about it? So it looks like you're giving me the opportunity for the first summary and Caleb for the summary of the summary. My, my first summary would be that, that uh, to eclipse or, or succinctly describe the game, I would say it's, it's like Wing Commander Privateer in the setting of Warhammer 40k and the uh, die mechanics as though you were playing Liar's Dice. So Wing Commander Privateer, those of us who were born in the late 80s, remember as a lovely video game where... You fly around in spaceships and steal stuff and make money. I'm sure there are infinite others. Uh, uh, 40k, we all know, is the grim darkness of the far future, and I felt that uh, while this setting seemed a little bit harder science than that, uh, there was definitely the grim darkness aspect. Uh, that it was, it was space seemed depicted as dark and dangerous and full of deadly uh, things, that the the unknown, and certainly the the idea of traveling through the warp along with warp perils was there. And uh, final comment about Liar's Dice is, is instead of rolling 1d20, 
and using that roll uh, on this challenge, it's it's the equivalent of, of I roll 6 or 7 d20 for my whole hand, and I record the results, and then I get to pick which result I use on any given challenge. Well, I'm going to fail this one so I can use my 20 on a more important roll, and it may uh, lead you to game the system to try and provoke rolls so you can dump dead cards in useless scenarios that you can easily retry in or that are not uh, dangerous. Uh, and I... Uh, of course, uh, Liar's Dice is, is a similar mechanic. You roll a number of dice, uh, you don't necessarily look at them, or at least your opponents don't, and you bet on the, the number of patterns. But uh, anyway, I, I thought it was a, a wonderful uh, mechanic. I, I, I could easily see expansions adding additional cards that have to go into your deck or losing cards from your deck to, to build a deck-building system that, that could stack up a character over a longer period. Otherwise, uh, the limited character advancement we saw seemed pretty good. And I thought it was very enjoyable. Okay, so we went all over the place with those answers. Um, going back to the original question of what the game is. This is a uh, sci-fi-based role-playing game uh, focused on space exploration with aliens and wormholes and, and typical sci-fi tropes. Uh, the... The gimmick to the game is that you don't roll dice, you play with a deck of cards like a poker deck. And the cards themselves are numbered, uh, and they come in different suits that correspond to the elements of the game. And uh, starting the game, you, you do have a character sheet, which tells you your race, your basic idea of a class, uh, and you have various stats and special abilities based on a lot of different options uh, but essentially you run your character based on drawing cards uh, and it's not like the cards give you different abilities the cards are generating the numbers that dictate whether you succeed or fail in a given conflict so going from that let's first talk about and, and you guys kind of already touched on this but let's just talk about the atmosphere of the game um, as Michael brought up, and uh, in a side conversation I had with Matthew before we started recording, um, there's a pretty big aspect of deities and gods in this game. Now, I don't remember from the recording whether or not they played a huge role in the one-shot. What was your guys' thoughts about that? Did it feel weird? Did it feel something that didn't fit? Or did it flow with the style of the game that these guys have created? Well, there were a couple moments that it, it did come up, but they I don't know that they were expounded on very well. And, and also through the editing process, I may have cut out some of the explanation. But essentially, following the tenets of your god grants you special abilities. You can, you can do things as a follower of a particular god that people that are not a follower cannot do. And there's a, especially the very last episode where we're fighting the main bad boss guy, I believe that uh, Matthew's character, Nadia, had just had a kick-ass power that really helped us succeed. And I think that was a power granted by the god, not just from her race class. Uh, again, I may be misunderstanding that. But my character in particular was actually uh, was unaffiliated. So he wasn't an atheist that he did not believe in gods, but there was no god that I was particularly following. So I actually didn't have any special abilities that came to me from a god, uh, which, I, again, I thought was kind of interesting that you know, this this sci-fi universe has laid on the fact there are deities and they exist and they grant, you know, powers like divine powers like in a DD game to their followers. Uh, and it's also kind of works like an alignment system that I gathered that if you violate the tenets, then you can lose those powers. So if you say that you're a follower of God X, then you have to role play out that following. That doesn't mean you can't ever fall short. I mean, you know, as the thing is like alignment, it's not a hard and fast rule, but it's sort of a guideline. But I thought it was pretty interesting. I don't know that through one play, play test, I could really get a feel for it. But it was an oddity. Like I said, it really stuck out to me even before we started playing. But in some ways, that makes it very interesting and makes me want to explore it more. What do you think about that aspect, Scott? I think I agree. I... I... Uh, although our, our introduction, certainly in the, the podcast, to the fluff aspects of, of the deities is brief, I really enjoyed the fluff attached to the deities. I really enjoyed the 
the the limited number. I'm, uh, um, I'm, I'm used to game systems where there are enough deities that I can no longer count them. I just assume there is a deity for any given thing and start making up names in games that I run to go along. But um, the, the, the fact that you could count them on one hand, the fact that their uh, philosophies seemed uh, fundamentally different in, in uh, ways that, that weren't just about ones for war and ones for peace, but, but uh, um, I don't know, more interesting and dynamic uh, approaches. I, I really enjoyed that addition. I did not see it as a disharmony. Gotcha. So it, the, the way that the game flavor and fluff has incorporated these deity aspects even though this is a science fiction space travel game it does not feel like they've shoehorned two separate ideas together it makes sense in the story and how it's reflected in the powers and abilities that stem from this idea i, w I would almost question your question because you seem to be implying that that uh deities would not belong in a science fiction game they belong more in a fantasy game and i i don't think that's necessarily true. I think they they are no more incongruous with swords and sorcery than they are with um, the terrifying alien beings from beyond the warp. That's true. Uh, in my opinion, and God knows I'm wrong, but when we're looking at the classic hard sci-fi tropes, to me that represents humanity pushing themselves to improve themselves and finding the strength to explore and deal with conflicts through science and logic and their own strength of will. And typically, that type of environment reflects people that have evolved beyond the need for a belief structure. You and I have read very different space opera then. Mine mostly involves <laughs> worshipping, you know, the, the Mechanicus of Mars and the, the holy order of the machine spirit where where it turns out some alien being has set itself up as a god and is lording its its ultimate power over humanity as they gently slide into the darkness. Well, and I think that's one of the things that, that I would find interesting about a, a further playthrough and a, a more exploration of the system is are these gods tangible like can you just fly to a certain place in space and there's god's house and you can go in and talk to him um or her you know are they just aliens from outside the galaxy they do have the ability to give these powers but they're they're like q from star trek that you know they're they're a being but they have godlike powers we, we don't know that yet are they true uh, metaphysical representation that they are you know they're untouchable unknowable or are they just demons from an extra you know extra planar dimension we don't know yet and it may not be maybe a mystery that even the game hasn't answered yet but i agree with caleb in, in most of the science fiction that i'm familiar with um, the idea of a deity in a science fiction setting is sort of odd. But again, I find that sort of appealing, not uh, discongruous. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I I did not mean to imply that I didn't like that aspect of it. It is very unique in that it it not only incorporates the concept of a deity, but really pushes it to the forefront. From from what I saw in the in the content, uh, the printed material that was sent to us, along with listening to the audio, it's obvious that faith not, doesn't require, but definitely gives the players benefits when they pay attention to this aspect of their character. If we look at even Dungeons and Dragons, even when you play a cleric or a divine being, it's very easy to forget or not roleplay or ignore fully the aspect of the deity that your character worships. It's very, very easy to say, okay, you know, I'm a cleric of Paylor and I'm just running around casting spells and hitting people with my mace, and that role-playing doesn't always come up. And honestly, there's other than the spells, there's not always a a tangible mechanical impact of following your deity or your alignment. If your GM is really harsh about it, he's going to say, did you pray this morning? Are you following your alignment? And there might be penalties. But those are all kind of alternate rules. Faith really puts a forefront of saying, or puts to the forefront, this is your deity, here's what you get by doing what the deity says or follows. So that's 
refreshing. That's interesting. That's a very unique concept. And I, I think that goes hand in hand with the other uh, unique aspects that faith uh, gives players. So I think the logical progression there, the unique aspects, is the mechanic of the game, which is based on the uh, the playing cards, the hand of cards that you draw at the start. The cards also represent experience, if I understand correctly, right? Yes, um, which is another thing that I actually really enjoy about this system, or at least find interesting, is that you basically um, get experience every time you cycle through your deck. So basically you play 50 cards, then you get experience. And I believe, if I remember, was it two two points you get at that point and then you can do things with them you can uh spend them to upgrade certain abilities uh or attributes and uh the humans their special features they actually draw one extra card so they're going to cycle through their deck a slight bit faster on average than the other characters well that's that's actually not true right i mean they they'll, they'll have one more option but but uh, having one more card in your hand doesn't let you play more cards because there's no discard your hand mechanic right no, I, I, well, that, no, that you're, well, that's just true, but let's say that you draw, normally you start with seven cards, you would start with eight, and we play through four of them, and then we redraw back up to seven, I'm going to draw three, you're going to draw three, so you still have one more, and I, I don't know if there, I, honestly, I don't know if there is, is ever a time where you just discard them all and redraw, and I thought he said that there was other benefits later that would let you cycle through them faster, so I may be confused on that, but even if it's one card, you will cycle through your deck one card faster. You, you, you will complete your deck one challenge ahead of everyone else every round. Uh, of everyone else. So once you've gone through the deck, you get your experience uh, to do what you do with it, um, which again, I just find it, it's a you know, it's elegant. It's like a, it's a simple mechanic that makes sense. If you're going to use a deck of cards as your mechanic, to me, that just makes perfect sense that you cycle through the deck and um, and the, your XP goes up. The other thing, and I touched on it with Carlos, and he, I, I don't think he really had explored that, but I think that the way the, the deck works that way is that I actually think Faith would be very easy to run GMless. If, if you had a group of people that were willing to work together, uh, you could just set a deck of cards, put the jokers in there, shuffle them up, set them in the center of the table, and just group storytell. And whenever someone says, I think it'd be fun here if we had some opposition, you just roll the cards off the top of the deck for your opposition, and just whatever randomly comes up, comes up. I, I could see that working very, very easily and allow you to play a game where everyone's contributing so I don't know. I, I brought it up. He didn't really see it wasn't something they had considered or talked about, but I think it's very easily done with that system. Now, I think, again, I have not played this. I'm I'm a little bit behind uh, the game here, but I, I thought that one of the aspects of it, there there is certainly a degree of choosing which card out of your hand you're going to commit to a certain action or trying to overcome in a certain conflict. While this, the, the math might work out if you were playing without a GM, potentially some of those conflicts would be way easier than they should be or way harder than they should be, which, of course, is its own challenge. There's nothing wrong with that. Even with a GM, the GM always has, has the option to play from the top of the deck or from their hand. Ah. So that is, that is baked in there. You know, they can just choose to do it off the top or they can choose from their hand. And I, I don't exactly know why you would do one over the other other than if the DM is also limited by the cards they have in their hand. If they spend them all from their hand, they then only have the option to go off the top of the deck. So it may be something where if it's it's a minor issue that you're not as concerned about it from the DM standpoint, you just roll off the top of the deck and take your uh, take your luck, and then you keep other cards for the conflicts that you are more interested in creating drama. So I mean, it's it's really it's already there. There's just a small bit of decision making, which is why I think it would be very easy just to to re even remove that and just go straight from the deck every time. You know, I thought that was one of my favorite things from a DM perspective about the game was was that they hard coded something I already do at the table, which is uh, sometimes I roll dice because I honestly want to know what randomly happens as a DM, and other times I roll dice just to give players the the sound of the clatter, but I've already decided the result of this uh, 
right? Unless the dice ridiculously, absurdly disagree with me. So I, I think that's uh, that that encodes in the rules a, a practice that was already a little ham-fisted and some players don't enjoy to, oh, well, I already have an ace up my sleeve and I'm going to play it because it's so plot appropriate for you to suck, fail, and lose right now. Right. Uh, the other thing with the deck um, is... And this is the part where it gets a little bit more crunchy, but based off of your attribute levels, and I may be interposing the right words because you have, I think you have skills and you have attributes. Um, but if you play a card that is less than half of your number, so let's say my number is four, anything I play one through eight, when I play it, it allows me to draw another card. So it, it does incentivize in some ways you playing cards that aren't going to help you as much because it's a lower number, but then it allows you to draw and, and get more cards in your hand that might help you later. Uh, so there can be situations where like you can't possibly win, but you throw away the one or the two just to get another card in your hand for next time. Or if you're ridiculously winning and there's no way you can lose, you could still drop a one or a two or a three or a four and try to get a better card. And then I think you mentioned it, Caleb, that each suit in the poker hand or the poker deck, they have reskinned to uh, basically there's like science, there's uh, the like the technological world, there's outer space and there's like um, like utopia or city or something. There's there's four sort of environments, environments that they are coordinated to. And if you play a card that is that is appropriate for what you're doing. So my character was a hacker. So anytime I was actually hacking, if I played a card that had the hacker symbol, then that allowed me to either draw two cards. Again, this, I'm getting confused. There's one, there's one thing that lets me draw two cards and there's one, or no, draw a card, or I can draw two, keep one and put one back or put, or put it on the bottom. So it's a way to kind of filter and cycle through your deck. If you're playing cards that more closely match your character or the environment that you are most comfortable in. Gotcha. Um, so there, there certainly is a smart way to play the cards instead of just picking the right number. So yes. for anyone uh, who is thinking about this or looking at the Kickstarter or reading through any sample material, uh, there is a deeper mechanic uh, to looking at these cards that are in your hand. Um, your character sheet does give you your stats, your race, your various powers, and the cards that you play interact with those numbers and what those things mean um, pretty regularly. One of the things that Matt brought up to me when I talked to him earlier was that using this card mechanic definitely makes you be a lot more conscious of your tactics and your choices, uh, both mechanically and when you're role-playing. What, what he brought up, and this is something that Scott touched on a little bit earlier, you know the numbers that are, that are available to you. Uh, you're not rolling a dice and you could get anywhere from 1 to 20. You can look at the 7 or 8 cards in your hand and know that you have all 12s or all 1s or whatever mix happens in between those. So he, uh, Matt found it pretty interesting that not only do you pick the number you get to, to commit to a, a conflict resolution, but you're also picking how you are role-playing that number, whatever that means. You know ahead of the moment what's going to happen. Oh, so, so do, do, do you get the impression that Matt meant that you knew ahead of time whether this would be I burst from the hatch as a blaze of glory or I stumble awkwardly from the hatch and take a pot shot before I hurt myself? Exactly, yeah. I, I mean, when we're playing D&D &D or any dice-based game, you say, I'm making an attack roll. I roll a d20, I add my modifier, and then I define my action. In this game, I say to myself, exactly like you said, I'm going to play that 12 and I'm bursting out in a blaze of glory, or, well, damn it, I have to play this too, so I'm going to trip and stumble and, and try to take a shot. So it shifts a little bit of where you are drawing your inspiration from for role-playing and flavor. You're, you're free to narrate ahead of time. Exactly, and it prepares you ahead of time. There, there is still initiative in the game, so you still know whose turn is coming up. So you're, you're going to know on your turn, well, I'm probably going to have to play this 5 or 6, or, oh, awesome, I can play this 13. So it lets you ramp up a little bit. You can get a little bit more excited and prepared about what you're doing to describe your actions. And I think that's a great tool for 
role players of all levels of experience, but especially people that are learning role playing and how to get into the character and describe actions. I mean, essentially, you're telling them, hey, you're going to get a 12 on this and you can do the math in your head. You know that the bad guy has a 10. You know you're going to win. Get ready for how this is going to happen, that kind of thing. I also really appreciated that the the order was so different, that, that you didn't pick the card when you picked what you'd do. Every, everyone committed to use a card for this round as their initiative and their first action. So so you, you're, you're conflating these two ideas of, of I really want to go first, but I, I would hope to fail something. Well, does that mean I pick a middle number? Or um, I, I really don't care about going first, but I really need to succeed and do a lot of damage on this shot. And, and you commit to the card before you even... You, you can... Uh, please correct me if I'm wrong uh, or misremembering, but I believe you, you can change what your action is, but you can't change the card. So if, if play evolves as you roll down the initiative order, and now instead of um, sh- you know shooting fire, you are taking fire or doing something else, you're, you're committed already to the, to the ace or to the six that you have uh, face down in front of you. Yes, that's another thing that I really liked. I thought it was kind of fun, is which we were playing over obviously over the hangout, so it made it a little bit diff- difficult. But the way initiative normally works in the game is you pick your card and you set it down in front of you face down until everyone has chosen their card, and then you flip it up, and the number on that represents your initiative. Highest numbers go first, and that card is also the first card that you will play no matter what you do. So if you run, jump, shoot, hide, crawl, whatever card you picked as your initiative is also the first card that counts toward that number if there's any confrontations. So uh, as we are all fairly experienced gamers and role players, did you guys feel that you were changing your style and your actions in any way to reflect this new type of game where you had advanced knowledge of what was going to happen so to speak I'd, I'd say yes certainly um it it, it it the final the very final boss encounter i'd i'd uh, been mindful to play all my dump cards i dumped all my dump cards really early in the our session and so uh, uh spoiler alert in in the final encounter i um we, I had the confidence that that I had the hands, the, the cards in my hand that we knew we could win, right? There, there, there was certainty there, and that gave the players confidence to do a brave thing rather than to, uh, you know, foolishly run and hide and do all these things that seem to be the earmarks of the characters I play on the show over and over. <laughs> so that was that was lovely. For me, I would say no, because I am bad at math. And I never really knew if I was going to win or lose. Didn't know where I was at in the situation. I would be like, so I need a seven, right? Yeah, okay, I have a seven. I win, right? No. God damn it, what happened? Um, so, yes, since I'm bad at math, I actually, I even I kind of apologize. I, I don't feel like I did a great job role playing because I was focused on the mechanics and trying to figure them out. And even though I enjoyed them, and they're not really difficult, I just, I hadn't ingrained it yet. You know, I'm sure two or three sessions in, it would be second nature. Uh, but I was I was really paying attention, trying to figure out, make sure my math was right. So th- there is certainly a learning curve to these mechanics, even though we are describing them as somewhat streamlined and uh, a somewhat elegant system with the cards. Uh, there certainly is a dynamic to learning when when is the right time to play a card and and when isn't. Um, one of the things I also got a little bit confused about because I was again learning third hand was that there were times when you could play multiple cards there was times when the bad guys could play multiple cards it was kind of all based on the numbers you presented when you started the conflict so there certainly is a strategy to determining it's not just always playing the highest card um there there's definitely math involved there there's definitely uh, other things there um and and there are things that are special abilities whether they they trigger from your character sheet, even though this the system is you know it's a lot of math. If you're not great at math like I am, they all work the same way. No matter what the special ability is, it affects a card. It either makes it a higher number or a lower number, or it allows you to use more cards or less cards. So no matter what crazy ability you're playing, in narratively and in, in what that means in the game. It, it all just comes down to the numbers in front of you. So it makes it really, really simple compared to 
other games like D&D specifically where I have a special ability that lets me trip you or I have a, you know, I use this thing, I do a magic spell that does this much damage or this spell grapples you or this spell puts you to sleep. Every special ability just affects cards in some way or another. And I just, I, again, I think that's super elegant and simple. And once you've played it a couple of times, I think you would be, it'd be, it would go really, really fast. One, one of the things I really wanted to bring up, and I, I think you guys got as excited about this in the game when you heard it, was when it comes to defensive abilities, you can defend by shooting somebody. Yes. How cool is that? I don't want you to shoot me. Someone shoot you instead. <laughs> awesome. So, it, that's yes, that's freaking cool. <laughs> that's that's awesome, and it it really does kind of flesh out that whole shootout concept that really is there in the space opera. I mean, let's call it like it is in Star Wars. The the good guys are, are shooting across at the stormtroopers, and the stormtroopers go down first, so the good guys don't get hit. Um, and that also speaks to the fact that you're not, in faith, rolling against targeted defense. You're you're basically it really is an opposed conflict. Um, from what I listen to, and and. Add in here and correct me if I'm describing this uh, the wrong way, but it's not a a hit is not resolved such as I try to hit your AC. It's that we're both struggling in this fight and we're seeing who comes out ahead. If that makes any sense at all to to you guys, right? And the way it works is. That's where those confrontations come in. I'm trying to attack you and shoot you. You are trying to not let me do that. And you can choose any number of ways. You could try to put something in between you and the bullet. You could dodge out of the way, or you could shoot me first. Or if you're a hacker, you could try to turn my gun off. You decide based off of what you want to do and what you can do and what makes the most sense to try to stop me from shooting you. And we play our cards and we both try to do our best. And then at the end, one of us will have succeeded. So either I got the higher number and I shot you, or you got the higher number and I didn't shoot you based off of what you did, which does include shooting me first, which would then do damage to me instead of me shooting you, which I think is really, really cool. The other side of that, or I should say the continuation of that, is you can confront as many actions as you want. So if there were 13 people and they all were going to shoot at me, I can confront every single one of them and try to keep from being shot. But I only have so many cards in my hand, and eventually I'm going to run out of cards, and then it kind of stops. So if I confront someone, that's my action. So I don't get to then do something on when it's my turn. I can choose not to confront it and just let you shoot me, hoping that either it just doesn't do enough damage or some other factor will allow me to survive that. But that's one of the strategies that we kind of realized very, very late is that even if we don't really hope to do damage to the big bad, if we at least shoot at him, he has to either decide to let us hit him, which will do some damage, or confront that action, which means he doesn't get to attack on his turn. And then since there were more of us than him, it, that's one of the ways that we eventually were able to win that last fight. And I just found that interesting and super cool. It's, it's interesting that you can game the initiative system that way. And that to me is, is one of two examples I noticed that where since we've we've done our dungeon world play and review rather recently where where I I noticed similar mechanics in faith versus dungeon world but I feel that they were better executed in faith the the first example is that in dungeon world of course you mark experience whenever you roll a horribly poor roll but of course that just means that that some people level up faster than others which I'm generally against uh the chronically bad rollers you know there's some there the, you're doubling down on your player jealousy cuz some people are jealous of rolling low and others are jealous of rolling high and and uh, rather rewarding experience when you roll through the rest of the deck. I, I think that's a, a, a more consistent system that that uh, represents the the concept they wanted to get to, but uh, it represents it better. And and I, I think this too the 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 idea of of opposed roles or opposed actions. I thought it was a a, a really brilliant idea in Dungeon World to balance uh, the number of monsters versus the number of players and uh, make, make sure that everyone really gets an action and you, you both kind of act against each other. But, but I feel like the, the execution in Faith is, is so much more interesting. You, it, it, it encourages you to game the initiative system, like Michael said. It, um, 
I, I, Michael, I think that the, you've been using the right word. It's an elegant rule system. Well, it also seems to really encourage players to be active participants at all points in the game. Uh, there is a very real problem with certain role-playing systems in that you don't have to pay attention in combat or in certain situations unless it is actively your turn. And some people can get away from that based on uh, skill and experience. Sometimes a GM will put the hammer down and make rules about no cell phones, no tablets, no distractions. But, I mean, come on, we're human. We're going to get distracted unless we are actively forcing ourselves to engage. And not everyone can do that. I mean, I've been distracted plenty of times. Uh, if for the simple fact that I have to grab my D, uh, my PHB to look up a spell or how a weapon works, and then I get distracted because I'm looking at something in a different class, or I saw a cool picture, or I got a, a spark of interest for, oh, what about the next time I want to build a ranger? I should do this, this, and this, and I found this cool thing how it works. You're still talking about the game, but you know, you're, you're still getting distracted. And yes, it's the responsibility of the GM to keep everyone engaged. And it's the responsibility, it's the expected dedication that if you're playing at a table, you're playing the damn game. So be there in the moment. Well, and I think this, I mean, it. I, I do, again, I love the word elegant. I think that describes the, the mechanic very well. But it's also kind of rules light, especially if you're good at math. So the turns are gonna go really fast. You know, and the, and the games you're talking about where that happens is usually because the, the the person that's their turn, they're taking a while, they're evaluating all their options. If you're using a grid, they're counting squares. If you're not using a grid, they still might be trying to figure out or asking clarifying questions like, well, can I move here and get goblins and not get my allies with my fireball, and, you know, that type of thing. And it seems like there would be less of that in the system. It's very fluid, very freeform. You, you know, you don't use a, a grid. It was all theater of the mind or narrative combat, as, as we like to say. And because you use the mechanic, it goes pretty quick. And you're like, um, you know, again, Carlos was very good at it. But basically, when the confrontation starts, I know that I'm going to play one, two, three, or four cards based off of my skill the bad guy or the opponent knows how many they're going to play. If someone has advantage or disadvantage, that affects it one way. So instead of playing four, I can only play three. Or instead of playing three, they get to play four. That's all within within 30 seconds. You have the parameters of the confrontation. And you play cards back and forth. You've only got six, seven, eight cards at the most at the in the very first confrontation. It's going to go really fast. So every turn's going to happen so fast that I don't think you're going to have time. By the time you picked up your phone and unlocked it, it's probably your turn again. Or it's at least the next person's turn. And then a lot of these special abilities that we talked about, they interact on other people's turns as well. So, um, again, Matthew's character, he had the ability to take self-damage to affect someone else's card. And so he has to be paying attention to other people's turns or he's never going to get to use that ability. So I think that's one of the biggest reasons why you're not going to see that is that there's not there's not enough time to get distracted. Well, one of the things you brought up during that. Oh, I'm sorry, Scott, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say that, that I, I think the, the mechanics are, should be just about as easy to learn as War, the old card game. I mean, in, in, in one night, I, I feel like I had a pretty reasonable understanding, which is far quicker than I've understood poker. I, I feel like there are fewer exceptions, fewer special rules. It, it was a very quick card game to play. Go ahead. Um, well, what I was going to say there is um, you, you brought up the, the term, and I've used it a couple times, uh, the phrase, when the GM starts a conflict. And that's important because it it's up to the GM to say okay, this is something we have to oppose instead of this in a, in difference to this is something you guys succeed at automatically. And, and that is certainly a concept that exists in other role-playing games, even in Dungeons and Dragons. And on this very show, we've had pretty lengthy discussions about automatically succeeding at a check or a passive ability score Taking or... Taking 10, taking 20 in older systems. Scott, you even said it 20 minutes ago. 
you said, I've already decided as a GM whether or not this succeeds. Sometimes I just roll dice for the hell of it. We know as GMs instinctually, sometimes you let things happen. Sometimes you let the dice tell you what happens. But it's a very specific codified rule in faith that the GM says, okay, guys, this is a conflict. If you role-playing your character is saying, all right, I want to go in here and, and look for this and look around, he's probably going to say, all right, you find this. But if he knows in this room that there's an alien hiding in the closet or the computer terminal is locked by some crazy encryption code, he's going to say, all right, well, if you're looking through it, tell me how you're looking, tell me where you're looking. And if you describe something that generates a problem, he's going to say, okay, you can do that but now we're going to have a conflict on it. So you start flipping a couple cards. I also thought that that very much bleeds into the uh, fate concept of the fate fractal rule, where you are you can make anything have stats and be in opposition. And that's something uh, Matt brought up uh, in our conversation earlier today too. Um, if we do a throwback to uh, our... Um, our game with Porter in the desert. Tear, very, very sad moment here. But uh, when we were in the desert, that desert had stats and had a stress track. That was the fate fractal rule that made that functionality work. When you guys were playing Faith, one of the things I listened to Carlos say was essentially, I'm playing the conflict of the computer you're trying to hack. I'm playing the conflict of the lock you're trying to unlock a different rule yes a different mechanic but it's a very very similar theme and matt also brought up the the fact that he felt the way the description of the characters work the description of some of the powers worked he felt uh, a pretty strong influence from fate there so since we all love fate so much what are you what are you guys feeling about all that I feel like the conflicts in this came out, um, and, and it may have just been that this was a prepared adventure that's been played before, and uh, good old heroic Porter, uh, you know, blind shot us new rules and new attempts and, and novelty. Uh, God bless him for for trying new things in front of players, not working at a routine, I don't know, by yourself or in front of the little lady like I sometimes paranoidly do. Anyway, but I feel like the, the conflicts and confrontations that we saw in our game of faith here were, were more interesting or, or more fun to play through structurally than the so, some of the desert scenes. I, I feel like sometimes in, in Fate, the, the idea of creating an advantage, uh, in, in some environments, that seems to stick really well, and it the meaning of that is really obvious, and in other environments, less so. But, but at least in this prepared adventure, which is a very uh, isolated case, I don't believe we ran into anything where, where that, that didn't quite fit into the challenge system that they had. Well, with the possible exception of, of the fact that the efficiency of a starship's drive, a fusion drive, is directly proportional to its effectiveness as a weapon. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, again, i huge fan of Fate. I, I really, really like Fate. But I would agree with you that uh, going back to our, our encounter in the desert, is that I felt like that was a way to make that seem challenging. Because if, if, if I have a criticism of fate, is that I almost don't enjoy the fact that we succeed so often. Like, um, again, I'm a big fan of the hero's journey from D&D, and fate assumes that you're competent uh, all the time. And, you know, so it was like, how do I make this really challenging, make it difficult? And it, and it worked. But there were at least a couple of the rounds where it's like, okay, well, we've kind of done this already. We got a big success, but because we gave this desert a stress track of three, we have to do it one more time. And it didn't always feel fun. Like, it was challenging. wasn't always fun. This, every confrontation made sense. I'm trying to hack the gun. Well, the gun has a defense. I'm playing that defense. We're trying to open the door. The door has a defense. I'm playing the defense. It it fits so well that I never felt like I never felt distracted. Like there was never a time where the mechanics of the game interrupted the flow of the game. And and that's a big value. That's a big positive of any type of role playing game. A lot of times when you're in a, a real crunch heavy numbers heavy system, you have to pay attention to a lot that is not role playing and not important to your character build. 
Uh, and if you're playing a rules light system, sometimes it's it is just too easy to get something done or it doesn't have that impact or that weight that you like to see from from getting a success um, from everything you guys are saying here faith kept everything really important kept it really uh, valuable to you in the moment it, it not only kept you focused on what your character was doing and how to um, do that thing you forced you to pay attention uh, but it also um, it all mattered it wasn't, oh, okay, well, I have to go over here and get a plus two and go over here and get that plus three and it does this kind of thing and does that kind of thing. It, it, it all made sense to the system, to your character, the, the whole shebang. Um, it, it's pretty evident that you guys really liked the game and really liked the system. Is there anything that you didn't like? Tough question, I know. Uh, it's 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 harder to be critical, and we're certainly not being critical of this game at all. But from an objective standpoint, was there anything that it was just too long to learn, or it didn't feel right in the moment? I I would say that that I I feel like the the mechanics I've I've given a glowing review. Um, the the fluff we've talked about uh, sparingly, obviously, because because Admiral Crunch is conducting the interview, but. Um, uh, the crunch interrogation aside, I, I think I had a, a really mixed feeling on the space opera feel, which, which I have a very mixed relationship with space opera narrative anyway, because uh, one half of me uh, wants to save the the uh, always for some reason white blonde female heroine who's you know broken her high heel and is stuck somewhere on an alien planet that has a breathable oxygen atmosphere that that we teleport down in a glitter spiral and and you know punch a green alien in the face and and take the blonde girl or maybe punch a blonde girl in the face and take the green alien if you're captain kirk don't I, forget to rip your shirt you gotta rip your shirt that's right i i i I've I've played you know TNG and Next Generation role playing systems the the I mean the the, the original series role playing systems much more fun because of the four color corniness, but at the same time being in an environment where we're talking about weightlessness we have to power devices with fusion power cells that we get from from us you know small robots and ancillary devices we're talking about stealing ships that that provides just enough rationality for me to over apply rationality. And I've I've seen that happen to certainly players in in D and D where you want to this this there's a whole pile of loot why can't we take it all well from a metagame perspective that's inconvenient or or because it's magic there are explanations like that so so um, however I I always find it's more pronounced in a space opera setting and so that I think uh, I'd mix feelings on. I would say I'm probably somewhere along those same lines is that because I wasn't able to read most of the background and world and universe uh, material, I felt very disconnected from that. Like I said, I didn't really do a lot of role playing. And I think that's more of the game we played than the game itself because of the time that we had. Uh, we we did play through a pre-structured adventure, which I actually thought Carlos did a great job. I imagine he's probably run that same adventure a thousand times because he just he was on it the whole time. But I never felt like I was really connected. Like I was a Corvo. I never really knew what that meant. I was I was a I was a character sheet. I really wasn't a, a fleshed out character. But I don't think that's a negative of the system. I think that's a negative of the environment that we played the game at that particular time. But I'm also not the biggest fan of science fiction space opera in my role playing games. I'm I'm unabashed. D and D is my favorite RPG. It probably always will be my RPG favorite RPG because I like medieval fantasy. I want to swing swords and cast fireball. That's that's what I want to do. So even while we were playing, I was like, how could I make this fantasy? Like that was going through my head the whole time. Is like, well, I could do this very simple with you know. So I was already hacking it to my favorite setting. But that's not a that's not a criticism of the game. That's more about me in that that setting. Um, so we played, you know, one time for about three hours. There really wasn't a lot of negatives. Like I again, I'm not just trying to to, to fluff it here for for Carlos. I really like it, and you know, I might play it four more times and then go, oh, okay, now I get it. Now I get why I don't like it. But that one playthrough, I'm pretty good. So I actually I will say the only thing I would say. 
uh, this is about the, the components, is because of my OCD tendencies, I would probably prefer to play it with an actual deck of cards so that I can throw them away after about every fourth go-through because I don't want the cards to get all warped and bent. But I would probably want to have the cards because they are really cool, but just not play with them. Like, it'll, it'll go on my shelf, uh, but I will play with a deck of actual cards if I, if I play this at my home. That is certainly one thing that I didn't bring up earlier, is you can play this game with a regular standard deck of poker cards at home. Yep. Uh, there are only four suits, even though they're, you know, space and hacker and whatever. One of the things in the instruction manual is, if you're playing with cards, hearts means this, spades means this. So uh, this is something that, while the product that these guys have is gorgeous and really well made, if you are traveling and forgot to bring it with you, if you know how to play the game, you can find a regular deck of cards anywhere. Um, if you're incorporating new players at a con and you didn't bring enough for everyone at the table, you can find a deck of cards anywhere. So it's very, very flexible, and it's honestly easier to throw a deck of cards in your bag than a box of dice. So that's pretty cool. I, I thought it was interesting that what you... Uh, what you both pointed out was essentially the game wants you to or needs you to be a little bit more invested in the world than the average off-the-shelf role-playing game. I don't know that it needs to. For me, it's just I'm so much more familiar with, with fantasy. The majority of the fiction that I read is fantasy. The majority of the role-playing games I play are fantasy. So if you say, hey, we're going to play in a generic fantasy world, I've got years of experience that I can in my own head flesh out and you know eventually we'll come to a point where you say well there are no wizards in this world I'm like what you know I've been in my head I've been playing with wizards for an hour but I can still figure that out but when you say we're playing in space I have a much smaller repository of experiences of Star Trek Star Wars and the Alien franchise that's about it maybe Flash Gordon from the 70s I don't have nearly as much things I can draw on so it's harder for me to begin invested uh, myself without having more material. So I, I don't think that's a criticism of the game itself. That's more just what I bring to the table. It, it may be a wider phenomenon with, with science fiction settings. That, that fantasy, there, there are these core tropes that almost everyone knows. You know, orcs are this, elves are that. Um, you know, thanks to Tolkien and some early authors. But, but science fiction is so all over the place. We have, we have dark, gritty, Cthulhu-like science fiction. We have, we have highbrow, promising, the universe will be all right science fiction. We have everything in between. We have Star Wars. We have Star Trek. We have a number of blockbuster franchises that are completely incompatible, unlike Marvel vs. DC, where you just can't make a, you know, a, a, some sort of match-up combat game. It's, it's, uh, it, it, it means that, that everyone takes their own little weird bit of science fiction literature and media to the table, and so all their expectations will be different. One person will be complaining about uh, you know vacuum exposure to skin over six minutes and blood vessels bursting. Another player may want to uh, have force powers, and a third player may expect to uh, you know, uh, contact, you know, have, have an experience with the warp and come back with an elder demon who's attached to their hip. So I, there, there are... Uh, it's it's a very broad playing field science fiction. It's 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 hard to hit something that everyone is intuitively connected to. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um space is so big, the fiction that incorporates space is also pretty <laughs> damn big. Um I mean, we didn't even touch on the more hardcore hard sci-fi like 2001 and the other oh, 16 billion books he wrote do not quote 2001 and arthur c clark for hide science fiction it was a bad example but there's still a lot more science in those series than in firefly than in star wars yes very true but specifically with with faith its setting is very unique compared to other space operas the fact that it puts religion at the forefront, uh, the fact that it has you, it has these very unique alien races that that have different connections to each other and the deities. I think one of the alien races was actually kind of a, a hive mind thing, and and you had benefits when there were multiple of the same race in the party. Yes, the Izcal, I think. Right, and there was only one of you played in Izcal or whatever it was, right? So we didn't have that element in in the test but correct i i think all role-playing games 
definitely take advantage of their own unique flavor and world, but faith really pushes it to a forefront. When I asked Matt earlier about something he might not have liked as much about the game, uh, he kind of flipped back to the mechanics side of things and said that if you draw a hand of really lousy cards, it can be a little bit it can put you in a mood where you might not be as excited to play those cards. It can be a little bit uh, depressing that you think you might not have a chance at doing it. Of course, like we talked about, you know, there's still lots of role-playing options, but he felt just off of this short few hours experience that was the one takeaway that he didn't like as much as some of the other aspects. I can see that, but uh, my argument would be that's when I have to get creative and find ways to confront actions that are, you know, insignificant and get rid of those cards. So I'm going to I'm going to do something silly. I'm going to start a bar fight. I'm going to try to do a loop to loop barrel roll in my spaceship just to try to get a confrontation out rather than just waiting for the big bad guy to show up and try to shoot me in the face. So I actually don't I can I agree with him. I'm not saying he's wrong, but for me that would be a challenge that I would probably try to overcome that way. What were you going to say, Scott? I was going to say it's interesting that Matthew had that observation since uh, I, I think uh, since we were learning the system as we went, we only realized this uh, late in the session. But his character, above all, had the best utility for low-valued cards because he had the ability to play one of his cards to replace a card that some that the DA, the DM uh, has played. So so suddenly low cards are a boon to him. He you know mo most of us want to dump low cards as dump stats, but he wants to dump medium cards, so he only has abysmally low and radically high cards for the, you know, the big bad evil guy at the end of the dungeon. Interesting. Um, well, I, I think it's safe to say that um, we are a big fan of faith and whatever, uh, whatever factors might not be 100% are still really damn good. <laughs> I was very impressed. Myself. I know, you know, Kickstarter is still fairly new and you never really know what you're going to get, but the quality of the product put together is top notch. I, again, elegant, the, the core mechanic. Carlos basically stayed up 24 hours to run a game for us and he had a cold. Uh, a, a plus all the way around. Um, very excited. And again, I'm not saying this just because we agreed to do this for them with for the Kickstarter. I will be backing it when it hits Kickstarter. They'll get some of my money. So uh, that, that's a pretty good final statement there from Michael. Uh, what about a final statement from you there, Scott? I'd say anything that gives you the, the grim darkness of the far future gets my vote. And uh, I believe my money. Shut up and take my bottle caps. <laughs> All right. Well, um, Matt's not here to give us a final wrap-up, but uh, he, he did say he really enjoyed the game. He liked playing with it. He loved his character. Uh, he, he really got into it. Uh, he would have loved to see more of the environment, more of the flavor. And you guys had touched on that, too. And I think that says a lot. The fact that after a three-hour game, uh, the mindset was more, we want to know more of the story and not just we want to know more about the mechanics and how they work is, speaks volumes to the game, especially coming from us. We've tried a fair amount of new games, and we have a lot more new games on the horizon. And I think it's fair to say that we, we typically conclude we want to try it again so we can figure out the system more and figure out how to do more and different things. The fact that you three guys all said, we like the mechanics, it makes sense, it's easy, I want more of the story, give me more of the background, I want more experience with why this is and why my guy does this. That is a huge, huge, huge compliment to the creators of the game, the writers of the fiction, and and that's outstanding. That's that's really, really outstanding. Um, I am very, very bummed out that I did not get to play with you guys, uh, and I'm very much looking forward to giving it a try myself here at home uh, with, with my gaming group and with you guys again if we can put it another trial together. Uh, so all in all, uh, I think we can safely say that uh, the faith trial at the RPG Academy was a resounding success. You could go so far as to say that I have faith in how well this Kickstarter is going to do. Oh, God, I hope you edit that out. <laughs> I probably will. 
Thanks for attending the RPG Academy and listening to our podcast. We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. This podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash the RPG Academy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We will use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out in numerous ways. One, you can subscribe to our show on iTunes, or you can leave us a five-star review on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. Also, if you clear your cookies and then visit Amazon or drive through RPG through our portal, we get a kickback from your orders, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like an RPG, our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at vrpgacademy.com, or you can reach us on social media such as Facebook and Google+. We are there under the RPG Academy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, Caleb G, at the Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at the RPG Academy. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. <laughs>